Welcome to All Cats Are Gray in the Dark. I'm your host, April Simmons. This podcast contains true cases of graphic violent crimes and other stories of a dark nature. Please be advised that due to the subject matter and violent, sometimes sexual content and obscene language, this podcast is not for children or the faint of heart. Come And we're live. Surprise. <laughs> I don't know if Sabrina was ready. I just pressed the button. I was like, oops. Uh, yeah. I'm just enjoying my burnt face. That sounds, that sounds terrible. Yeah. He's, Going outside for me sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah. It's hard, man. It's hard. I know, right? Today's episode is about vigilantes. We've got several cases we're going to talk about today, and then we're going to continue on to the next episode where I have a really famous case. I'm not going to tell y'all what it is yet. It's a surprise. And we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to discuss the ethics of, of vigilantism in general. I know it doesn't sound very exciting, but it'll probably be just be more like us sitting here nodding like people can see us. and like <laughs> Exactly. Mm-hmm, I agree with what he did. That motherfucker deserved to die. Anyway, <laughs> um, that's probably what's really going to happen, but stick around for that part two. And we're not doing any lists today or next week because I didn't get anything together for that because my life is in chaos right now. <laughs> and we also had technical difficulties before the show. I could not get my computer to boot up. Scared the living hell out of me. So... So brought to you today and next week are episodes without a list because things went awry. Yeah, um, and I've been out of town and work's been crazy and all of the above. Yeah, work's been crazy for me too and I'm trying to get stuff together for taxes and I'm still not done. Oh, and oh, I'm kind of yeah, scared. Taxes. Yeah. And I'm kind of scared because we're going to have to like get what we have together and go talk to an accountant and see what kind of mess we're in (laughs) i'm so scared i'm so scared anyway i guess we'll jump right in do it it, doug do it when it comes to real life vigilantes or vigilantes i don't know how do you say that i I say vigilantes i do too Uh when it comes to real life vigilantes post-war germany has no better example than marianne bachmeyer a struggling single mother, she was horrified to learn that her 70-year-old daughter, Anna, had been killed. On May 5, 1980, the girl had skipped school and somehow found herself at the house of her neighbor, a 35-year-old butcher named Klaus Grabowski. Is it just me? Does that sound like a pedophile name? Jesus. Yeah. Grabowski. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Um. Anna's body was later found in a cardboard box on the bank of a local canal. Since Grabowski already had a criminal history of child molestation, he was arrested almost immediately after his fiancée alerted the cops. Kudos to her. Yeah. 
uh, alerted the cops to the situation. Though Grabowski confessed to murdering the young girl, he insisted he had not sexually assaulted her beforehand. Instead, he made a bizarre claim that the young victim had tried to blackmail him by threatening to tell her mom that he molested her unless he gave her money. Grabowski also said this alleged blackmailing was the main reason why he had killed the child. In the first place, Marianne Bachmeyer was furious that her daughter had been murdered. But well, she became... yeah. That's worded funny to me. Yeah. But she yeah. became even angrier when the killer told his story. So when the man went on trial a year later, she had revenge on her mind. At Grabowski's trial in the Lubeck court, District Court, his defense argued that he had only committed the crime because of a hormonal imbalance. As he had been voluntarily castrated for his crimes years earlier, by the third day of the trial, Bachmeyer had had enough. She smuggled a twenty-two caliber Beretta pistol in her purse, pulled it out right there in the courtroom, shot at the killer eight times. Grabowski was ultimately hit with six rounds and ended up dying on the courtroom floor in a pool of blood. Judge Gunther Krieger, Kroger, Krieger recalled that Bachmeyer said, I wanted to kill him. And then allegedly added, he killed my daughter. I wanted to shoot him in the face, but I shot him in the back. I hope he's dead. Well, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't mean to laugh ab about the situation, but just the wording there. I hope he's yeah. dead. Like, she's just like, I wanted to shoot him in the face, but I shot him in the back. I hope he's dead. <laughs> While it was clear from the dozens of witnesses in Bachmeyer's own statements that it was indeed her who killed Grabowski, she was soon to put, be put on trial herself. The revenge mother case quickly became a sensation in Germany, with some hailing Bachmeyer as a hero and others condemning her actions. For her part, Bachmeyer claimed that she saw visions of Anna in the courtroom before shooting Grabowski and that she could no longer endure him telling lies about her daughter. She reportedly sold her story to Stern Magazine for the equivalent of 158000 in order to pay her defense attorneys. Ultimately, the courts convicted Bachmeyer of premeditated manslaughter in 1983. She was sentenced to six years behind bars for her actions. You know what? I'm okay with that sentence. Yeah, I mean... I feel like there should... I mean, there should be punishment for that kind of situation. But I feel like it should be equivalent to the situation. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean... I'm... That one... Because she did that with, uh, like they said, dozens of other people around, that could have gone horribly wrong. Yeah. She could have injured other people. I get it. I get where she's coming from. And I think people should have justice. But at some point, like, that's literally what holds not everything that holds our society together. Obviously, there's plenty of problems, right? But... Yeah, I I believe she was sentenced fairly. <laughs> Still, it's a little it like I said, it's such a fine line to me. Like I don't think anyone should take a life, whether they deserved it or not. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I do, and we're gonna just we'll we'll get more into that. But in this situation, I'm I'm glad they just didn't they didn't just let her go. But I'm glad, and I'm glad her sentence was shorter. Yeah. Your turn. All right. Jason Vukovic You're welcome. is unique. What? You're welcome for getting terrible yeah. names in this one. Yeah. Uh, he is unique among real life vigilantes as his quest for justice began decades before he set out to find it. Born in Anchorage, Alaska on June 25th, 1975 to a single mother, Vukovic 
was soon adopted by his mother's new husband, Larry Fulton. Though Fulton was a religious man in public, he secretly used his nightly prayer sessions to molest Vukovich. Aside from the sexual abuse, he and his brother were regularly beaten with belts and pieces of wood. Even worse, Fulton got away with all of these heinous crimes, which made him furious, which made Jason... I'm going to go switch to Jason, because Vukovich is hard. Running away traumatized at 16, Jason spent years surviving on drugs and petty theft. He returned to Alaska in 2008 with a lingering hunger to seek vengeance on pedophiles like Fulton coming to a head in 2016. It began with Jason flipping through the local sex offender registry, and it culminated with him attacking and robbing three men on the list. Jason went after three men in 2016. He drove to the homes of Charles Alby, Andre Barbosa, and Wesley Demarest, targeting Alby first. After forcing himself inside the man's home on the morning of June 24th, Jason slapped the 68-year-old and robbed him before leaving. (laughs) I'm sorry, that's what he, he just, like, walked in someone's house, slapped them, and robbed them? Yeah. All right. <clears throat> he... It's, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to hate this guy. Like, it's kind of like, it's just, yeah. Just yeah. saying. He approached Barbosa in a very similar way two days later, but this time he knocked on the door at 4 a.m. He also brought a hammer with him, as well as two female accomplices and punched Barbosa in the face before stealing his truck and making an escape. All right. As for Demarest, he was ordered onto his knees as Jason bashed his face with a hammer. All right, this is getting a little more serious. I I I am avenging Angel, said Jason. I'm going to met out justice for the people you hurt. Shortly thereafter, police found Jason in a nearby car with all the incriminating evidence they needed, including the hammer, stolen goods, and a notebook with the men's name in it. He was charged with 18 counts of assault, robbery, burglary, and theft, and he ultimately took a plea deal. In 2018, Jason was sentenced to 28 years in prison, after which the judge stated that vigilantism won't be accepted in our society. Jason has since expressed regret for his actions and urged others in this position not to follow in his footsteps. I began my life sentence many, many years ago. It was handed down to me by an ignorant, hateful, poor substitute for a father. I now face losing most of the rest of my life due to a decision to lash out at people like him. To all of those who have suffered like I have, love yourself and those around you. This is the truly, this is truly the only way forward. So I, I feel sorry for him, but at the same time, like bashing someone's face in with a hammer, like that person doesn't belong on the streets. Yeah, I exactly. I think this person, th- this Jason guy, needed therapy, and obviously, you know, especially where it's only becoming more and more acceptable even now. And this is in Alaska, and born in the seventies, and you know. But like, I'm I'm against this one for multiple reasons. People on a sex offender list, unless he really like knew what they did, we don't know that this warranted. And you don't know the details. I mean, we have. I don't want to go into great detail because I don't want to name names. But we have a family member that was accused of doing something to a child. And the whole family does not, like, pretty much the entire family does not believe that he did it. 
Um, and it wasn't a child, wasn't it? A older uh, it was teenager. a teenager. It was a teenager. Yeah. But like a 17, 16, 17 year old. Yeah. Yeah. I just didn't want to give specifics because oh, I didn't want to give away. But um, it was a teenage girl that accused a family member of ours. Um, but nobody in the family believes that they did it. There's been no other accusations that have been brought up through the years. Um, um, but everybody feels that it was revenge for something else that he had done. Um, he pissed her off and she, this was her way of getting back at him. And it probably, I don't know if he's on a sex offenders registry, but, um, it's possible that he is. And so I guess that situation makes me a little bit more sensitive to that because I'm like, there's there uh, statistically speaking we know that there's people out there that have been convicted look at west memphis three yeah. we know there's people out there that have been convicted of crimes they absolutely did not commit i know of another guy um that was convicted kind of similar situation to what you're talking about mm-hmm. and nobody not a single person that knows him believes it was true that doesn't mean it wasn't, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, it's just one of those things. These are three guys he did or didn't know a lot of details on. That's a lot. And I don't, in that situation, especially that's vigilanteism isn't right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And now that you mentioned West Memphis three, shout out to the person on Twitter who tried to, um, basically reply to me sharing something that Damien Eccles said and share his uh, website or whatever that's trying to prove that the that the three actually are guilty. What? Yeah, yeah. And well, like, I mean, more power to him in a lot of situations that just ends up uh, helping them too, so. Because, <laughs> you know, Damien is actually in... The, the, you know, Damien, I don't know about the other guy, but Damien and, um, uh, Jason, sorry, I blanked out for a second. Damien and Jason have been working towards getting the DNA tested. <laughs> Why would they do that? <laughs> Why would they do that if they were guilty? Why would they keep pushing for some resolve in the case? if they if they actually did it why would they do that and that's what i shared was he was talking about how um for years uh the the sheriff's office there has been claiming that um some of the evidence got destroyed and then all of a sudden somebody found it (laughs) and yeah i think i've seen something about that where damien was like those fucking liars you know like they've just been lying about it for years because they didn't want to they didn't want a new an an appeal and a new case open yeah i mean that's why they made them take the alfred plea yeah um but it makes them look bad so they don't want people to test the stuff so it keeps getting turned down over and over again but you know shout out to that guy you're probably not going to convince me they're guilty would you convince me that it's possible they're guilty sure because i have a reasonable brain but you're not going to convince me that they're guilty because I've 
I don't, I haven't studied up on any of the new evidence, but back in the day before they were released, I knew everything about this case. Like I read every evidence file and the main thing that I seem to see on the website that he sent me, cause I actually did go look at it is, um, I think the the main thing there that this person's hinging on is the knife that was found in the trailer park where Damien lived. But there's so many problems with that. We're not even going to go into that because it's, yeah. it was never proven it was his. There's no official connection other than it being in the same trailer park. Um, and it was a very common serrated knife that is in everybody's fucking kitchen. Okay, so you're not going yeah. to you're not going to convince me. Like I said, I'm a little rusty on the details, but I've studied up on the case and it's like you're you're I guarantee you I know more about this case than you do. I've forgotten more about this case than you have ever known about this case. Okay? Yeah. Like seriously. Anyway, but that that person decided to try to um mess with me on Twitter about that. But yeah, like get out of here. Yeah, just go. I didn't even reply. I was just like, yeah, okay, whatever. You're dumb. <laughs> um <laughs> That's terrible. But anyway, I guess we need to move on to the actual subject at hand. Um, let's see here. When 21-year-old Tatiana, we're going to call her Tatiana because I, I don't... Tatiana. Yeah, it's a kind of... Uh, yeah. Coppage first heard the news of her brother's murder. Thoughts of revenge instantly flooded her mind on January 10th, 2021. This was a more recent one. 16-year-old Jason Ugwa. Ugwa, I don't know. We're going to call him Jason, too. Um, <laughs> was fatally shot and killed in an unsolved homicide in Kansas City, Missouri. An exceptional student and base, bas- ugh, almost said baseball basketball player, his death rocked the community and led to led Coppage to kill. P- police were still working on the case when the suspected killer was gunned down in the parking lot three days later. It didn't take long for authorities to tie Coppage to the shooting as surveillance footage tracked her entire journey from her house to the scene where 36-year-old Keith Lars was found dead. When authorities searched her text messages, they found two additional pieces of evidence. The first was a message to her dead brother in which she said, sent a N-word to my brother, I owe them that body. Um... Another text to a contact named Auntie inquired about 45 caliber ammunition. Coppage had also posted an emotional message on Facebook. I tried to shield y'all from everything I had to witness as a kid. I worked hard and long hours to keep a roof over y'all head. All I wanted to see, wanted was to see you happy, finish school and make it to the top. But somehow I still failed you. Fueling Coppage's urge to seek justice. Two of her other family members had been killed in 2016. Both children. The boys died in their beds after a shooting sent bullets tearing through their bedroom walls. Sadly, those murders were never solved, with Coppage keen on doling out justice herself. Ultimately, it seems that members of her community provided Coppage with the whereabouts of her brother's suspected killer, and clearly she was willing to accept her arrest if it meant that the man didn't kill anyone else. Oh, wow. Uh, So I'm assuming, just from the wording here, that I'm assuming it's gang violence or something similar yeah gang or drug it sounds like she felt like this might have been the same person that killed the children too or probably or it might be related to the if there if it was a gang related like drive-by or whatever yeah 
it might be the same gang or something, you know? I, I don't yeah. know. So that just, it's horrible. It's like, I don't even know what to say about this except just, wow. Yeah. Um, did it say how, how long she got arrested? I don't, I don't think it said how much time she got. Or that's since that was pretty recent. Yeah, yeah she yeah, may she not be fully not, sentenced yet. Yeah, but I, 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 I do believe she needs to be punished. But yeah. you know, hopefully they take into account the situation. Yeah, and she gets a lighter sentence. Um, your turn again. This one's really interesting. I think I had heard a heard a podcast about this at some point but yeah. it's been a while all right in two, early 2004 a colorado man named marvin Hemeyer, i don't know the way that's spelled makes me laugh Hemeyer plowed through the town of granby in a massive killdozer all right never mind not so funny during his rampage he tore down 13 buildings and caused seven million dollars worth of damage but despite the name of his vehicle and the fact that it held a 50 caliber rifle, a 308 semi-automatic and a 22 long rifle, he didn't actually kill anyone except for himself. When it comes to real life vigilantes, Hemeyer stands alone. He didn't have it out for one person in particular, but he was fueled by a years long rage against the local zoning commission. Mm-hmm. In 2001, the city had approved to, uh, the construction of a concrete plant zoning the land next to Hemeyer's for use. For nine years, Hemeyer had used that same land as a shortcut between his home and his welding shop. He tried to have the property rezoned to prevent the construction of the plant, but he was rejected multiple times. Tired of losing bureaucratic battles, Hemeyer turned to drastic measures. He decided there was only one way to get revenge on the town that had wronged him, modifying a Komatsu D-55A bulldozer that he had purchased a few years prior. He outfitted the vehicle with armored plates covering the cabin, engine, and even parts of the tracks. He mounted a video camera on the exterior of the killdozer for visibility and covered it with 3-inch bulletproof plastic. He also made sure that the cockpit inside the vehicle included two monitors so that he could observe his destruction from the inside. And he built three gun ports into the body of the bulldozer to stick his small arsenal out of. June 4, 2004, he sealed himself in the vehicle and went on a two-hour rampage through town, destroying stores, homes, town hall, and the concrete plant itself. Investigators later found out that everything he demolished was somehow connected to his battle against the zoning commission. While the governor considered authorizing the National Guard to take over, Hemeyer's killdozer got stuck in the basement of a hardware store. After causing millions in property damage and disrupting gas services to City Hall, he had come to the end of his road and shot himself in the head. Now this one I do want to comment on. There is a lot more to this. Obviously, this is a list episode, so I didn't have enough you know, time to include more. Yeah. Um. And I I've got a picture so that Sabrina could see the yeah destruction stuff. But um, I do believe there was more to this. I don't remember all the details because it was like two, maybe a year and a half, two years ago. I think since I listened to a podcast about this. Um, 
So I don't remember specifics, but I believe there was a lot more to this. Like they did a lot of stuff to him. Like he had tried to get that. I believe he tried to get that land himself for some for expansion or something. Yeah. Um. They they just they did a lot to him. Yeah. Um. They I, I think they just really had it out for him and. Was he like a town loner kind of person? Maybe not real. Not really. He was. Cons- I think he was considered, you know, a good, outstanding citizen in the community. Yeah, mm-hmm. but um, I believe it. I think, from my opinion, now this is just my opinion. I might be wrong on this. The impression that I got from listening to that was that. He, I believe his shop was, he's a, he's a mechanic or something. I mm-hmm. can't remember. Um, and the people that were stopping this from happening were a bunch of snobs. Mm. So I do believe it's kind of like a class war type of thing. They shit on him and he got fed up and yeah. Yeah. But I, I will say, like I said, I don't remember all the details. I could be wrong on all of the shit I just said. But, um, I do recommend looking more into that because it's just a really interesting story anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, and I will say that when I was listening to this, I was just enraged for him. So I understand that he just reached a breaking point and this happened, but it's sad that, you know, that it had to go, go that far. Yeah. Well, and too, like he caused all that damage and yeah that sucks but at the same time it probably didn't really do anything in the end like they probably had insurance on those buildings like now they get to remodel and make things better (laughs) you know like and and they probably just talk shit about him like you know just like they did when he was alive um and the whole situation is just infuriating honestly but anyway, let's let's move on so we can finish up this episode someday. Nah. Oh, was it? Wait. I read that one. Oh, you read that one? <laughs> I was you just had extra detail about it. I just had a it. ton of shit to say, apparently. I'm like, yeah. this one's about Pablo Escobar. I think everybody's heard, at least heard of Pablo Escobar, even if you don't know who he is. Drug kingpin. Yeah. Pablo Escobar needs little, if any, introduction. One of the most infamous drug lords in modern history, the Colombian kingpin ran a colossal cocaine empire that saw thousands of people killed. With corrupt authority figures in his pocket, Escobar's reign appeared resolute. Until it wasn't. Uh, In the early 90s, Escobar had two members of a rival cartel murdered when they visited him in an opulent prison, which he had built for himself. Wow. Wow. Uh, Fidel Castano, the other cartel's boss, was none too pleased. And so he helped form Los Pepes, short for Perseguidos por Pablo Escobar. The paramilitary group welcomed people persecuted by Pablo Escobar. Escobar was a marked man after he walked out of his own prison in July 1992. At this point, even the U.S. government and CIA were aiding Los Pepes in their quest to find the kingpin. Unfortunately, Los Pepes also engaged in bloody bombings against Escobar that killed and injured civilians. Some of these nearly killed their target, including a car bomb that injured Escobar's daughter. 
For more than a year, Las Pepes ruthlessly attacked anyone in the Escobar circle, from friends and relatives to public supporters and officials. It was in 93 when they closed in on the man himself. After Los Pepes forced Escobar into hiding, Colombian intelligence intercepted a call from Escobar to his son. Certain of his whereabouts now, Colombian police and military forces headed for Escobar's newfound hiding place in the neighborhood of Los Olivos. Ready for retribution after years of brutal violence in the country, whether Los Pepos members played an active role in actually killing him remains hotly contested. But one thing is certain, without their vigilant quest to find Escobar, it's likely he would have let been he would have led many more to their deaths. In the end, he was chased across rooftops and gunned down while on the run. So, but but they were causing a bunch of deaths. Yeah, I know. They were bad people too. It's a rival cartel boss that started that group, so yeah, it's definitely don't approve of any of that. Yeah, for sure. Now, if they want to like. I could, I mean, I could understand them giving information to cops or something. Yeah. Whatever. That's fine. But I, I don't agree with them taking matters in their home ham, especially with bombing civilians. Like, no thank you. So. I think that's all I have to say on that one. That's just, that one's all around bad. Hmm. Your turn. I, I already glanced at this one. I don't like it. Um, on the morning of July 10th, 1982, 14-year-old Kalinka Bamberski was found dead at the home of her stepfather in Lindau, Germany. An examination of her body revealed disturbing finds, including several injection marks, a torn vagina, and a white substance inside of her. But the substance was never tested, and her sex organs were inexplicably removed during the autopsy. Mm-hmm. Her biological father, Andre Bamberski, who lived in France, was horrified by the news. Meanwhile, her stepfather, Dieter Krumbach, was only questioned once by German police. A prestigious doctor, Krumbach admitted that he had injected the girl with a compound that would help her tan more efficiently, and that he had also given her a sleeping pill. It was only publicized later that he had also injected her with several other substances, including a dangerous com- combination of dopamine and ice. Isopten. To make e- matters even worse, Kronbach may have also been present at her autopsy. <laughs> by the time Bamberski received, huh? yeah, by the time Bamberski received the autopsy report months later, prosecutors had already closed the case, claim- claiming no foul play. Andre Bamberski was certain that his daughter had been raped and murdered, and that the authorities were letting a powerful predator walk free. He began handing out leaflets accusing Cronbach of the crime and hired a lawyer who put forth a complaint against Cronbach in France. By that point, Cronbach had already had an eyebrow-raising history as his first wife had died rather suddenly at age 24. And then years after Cronbach was cleared of any involvement in his stepdaughter's death, he was found guilty of drugging and raping a 16-year-old female patient. Bamberski, more determined than ever to see him face justice for his daughter's murder, decided to take drastic measures in 2009. He organized the kidnapping of Kronbach from Germany and arranged for him to be transported to France. He was dropped off near a police station, a move that would soon lead to his arrest and later conviction of the crime in 2011. The disgraced doctor was sentenced to 15 years in prison, and he ended up serving nine years until he was freed on medical grounds in 2020. 
Meanwhile, Bamberski was put on trial for kidnapping in 2014 and was handed a one-year suspended jail sentence for his actions. And here's the one reason why most people do feel like they have to take justice, because this mofo didn't get enough time. Yeah. Um, he was let out and got a suspended jail sentence for the... Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't, even though he's know. convicted. Yeah. Um, but... I kind of agree with this guy. He didn't, like, at least he didn't kill him. He just yeah. kidnapped him and dumped him off at a police station. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, go you, man. Like, like that's you made it ballsy. happen. That's ballsy. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I kind of dig that one. Yeah. I dig that one. Not the case itself, obviously. But. Yeah. Um, this next one, I don't know. Have you heard about this one? I forget. I don't think the, so. I forget the Maybe. name. There's a documentary about it. It's the town. Uh, some, I can't remember the name of it. But there's a documentary about this one, and it's uh, where, you know, it's an unsolved crime where the whole dang town was a witness. How about that? How would What's you like? To, fuck? Oh no, it's good. It's good because okay. this man was so hated by everybody in this town. He was basically a bully to the entire town what the hell um so when somebody finally popped a cap in him the whole town just was at like there and they everybody's just like i don't see nothing (laughs) so it's still unsolved because that nobody in the town will admit who it was um but i actually i i love this i love this case because of that but uh i'll actually say i'll go out on a limb and say i fucking agree with this good on them you know like this guy's terrible wait till you hear awesome (laughs) it didn't take long for ken McElroy, and you can scroll down and look at the picture it kind of reminds me of dad in a way anyway yeah (laughs) can kind of see that um this guy was an asshole put it simply uh ken McElroy was the resident bully of Skidmore, Missouri. And considering his crimes, the bully label was putting things lightly. For years after he dropped out of school, he was accused of everything from theft and arson to child molestation and statutory rape. But despite despite being indicted 21 times, he dodged convictions at every turn because he intimidated everybody, pretty much. He would intimidate his way out of going to jail, pretty much. Um... Or he would go to jail and then only to go to trial and he's scared the fuck out of everybody. He's threatened to kill people and they drop it. They drop the freaking case. You know, that's that's what kept happening to him. Um, after McElroy raped a 12-year-old girl, he divorced his wife and married the child when she was just 14. He bullied her parents into that. Holy God. To avoid a statutory rape charge. When her parents objected, he shot their dog and burned down their house. So Jesus. Yeah, that's how he got his way. Um, So he just pretty much got whatever he wanted in the town with violence. And after he shot a farmer in 1976, he somehow produced two witnesses who who claimed that McElroy was nowhere near near the scene of the crime that day. Ken McElroy was a true terror for Skidmore residents, and they wanted him removed immediately. Everybody was just terrified of this dude. He ran the town doing whatever he wanted because... Because he was so scary. 
But if um, they would have just stuck together once to just put him on trial anyway, you know, push it through. I, they like, tried. Lord. They tried. And I think it was the farmer that had actually tried that. The yeah. farmer that he shot. Because um, he, uh, I think he did something. He was, he did something to them. I can't even remember what. But, um, but that was his response to that farmer trying to press charges on him. So, yeah. Um, his, his downfall was a long time coming, but it truly fell into motion in 1980 after he shot the town's elderly grocer in the neck. Though McElroy was charged with attempted murder and eventually convicted, he appealed the case and was released on bond. Hell. Mm -hmm. Yep. Soon afterward, it seemed as though the entire town was present at a gathering on July 10th to discuss Ken McElroy. So they got together and had a town meeting to discuss what to do about him. Well, though it's unclear exactly what they said. There's no question that they decided McElroy had to go. Residents heard that McElroy had gone to the DNG tavern for a drink in a prime example of real life vigilantes in action. The community walked to the bar. The whole dang town went to the bar to confront him. And with no warning, someone began shooting. Some accounts describe up to 50 vigilantes involved in the onslaught. In the end, McElroy was shot multiple times and struck by at least two firearms. He succumbed to the wounds in his truck. No one called an ambulance or agreed to testify against another person in court. To this day, no one has ever been charged with in connection with his death. That's like a slow clap right there. I, I know, right? <laughs> That's what I'm saying, like... Uh, the whole case is just fascinating. Like, if you go through the list of everything he'd ever done, by the end of it, you're like, good for them? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, I just gave you the short list, like a summary. This guy bullied everybody, you know? Yeah. Um, That's more than bullying, too. That's just literally, like, he was like a evil crime lord, but his crimes were just for anybody that he didn't like like i don't know um and the by the way the the 12 year old girl was that he had married was actually in the truck when he died and everybody was on the street and she didn't even fight against it either (laughs) um she i think at the time she was actually sad because she actually started they kind of formed like a bonnie and clyde she could get away with doing whatever she wanted in the town too because Nobody would do anything to her because she was his girl. But so she was upset at first, but then later she came out and said, like, yeah, it was freaking terrible. You know, he pretty much just raped her all the time and did whatever he wanted, you yeah. know. Um, but I, she, I think she claimed she didn't see who shot him, but she was there in the truck. No, I mean, no. considering there was multiple guns that hit him, too, like at that point. Could you really easily say? And if it was kind of like a mob situation. Yeah. But anyway, nobody ever has admit, come out and admitted who did it. Yeah. And I don't know if they ever will. Yeah. Maybe but, on their deathbed we'll find out. Yeah. I just thought it was a, it's a really interesting case uh, yeah. of vigilantism. In this case, this guy did so much bad stuff. Like, he's literally... Um, a real life version of a villain. I mean, he's just he he was just bad he was evil. Yeah. Um, 
Anyway, let's move on. We this episode's gonna be super long and then the other one's gonna be like five minutes. We're gonna be like, okay, yeah. Yeah. um it was July two thousand when Eduardo Gallo's twenty five year old daughter Paola disappeared from his weekend home into Tepatzlan, Mexico. Worried sick, Gallo was soon contacted by gang members who wanted him to pay a hefty ransom for her return. And it's probably like Gallo or something like that, but I can't pronounce it. I'm sorry. I don't have the awesome tongue. Gallo scrounged up $18,500 and jewelry and swiftly paid those who took her, only to find her dead body a week later. Gallo's pain was unspeakable. His daughter had been shot in the back and the neck, and he knew that her final moments must have been terrifying. And while three suspects had been quickly arrested, the actual gunman was still on the loose. Determined to find the man himself, Gallo abruptly shut down his consulting firm and became a gumshoe sleuth. I will always love you, my adored child, Gallo said at his daughter's funeral. Thank you for your smile and your caresses. Thank you for your songs and your happiness and your love of life. You always lighted the path so I could distinguish between justice and vengeance. For the next year, Gallo chased physical leads on the streets and analyzed phone records. Perhaps most ominously, he found in his research that up to 90% of kidnappings are never even reported in Mexico as those closest to the victim are often terrified to the bones of violent reprisal. As for Paola, she had been kidnapped from her parents' home by men who brazenly broke in. After robbing the house, they grabbed Paola and fled in two cars that they stole from the driveway. Remarkably, her father not only found the gunman behind her death, but also led authorities to him. The resourceful sleuth had tracked one of the kidnappers to a payphone he had used after the kidnapping. Police then engaged in a stakeout that saw 28-year-old Francisco Zamora Arellano arrested and in a statement to the work of a real-life vigilante, Arellano confessed to the crime. So, I like this one. He just literally became a detective and was like, here he is, guys. He's like, I found him. Yeah. So, that's kind of like, it, he didn't have to kidnap him, at least, but and bring him to a different country, but... That I I like that level of vigilanteism versus the just going around shooting them. Yeah, or hammer to the face. Yeah. All right, that concludes this one. Do you have anything to add before we move on and end this episode for next and save the other one for next week? I got nothing. I'm ready. I'm ready for part two. Part two. It's terrible. You're gonna love it because it's terrible. Okay. I don't know about all that. Okay. See y'all next week then. Bye-bye. <laughs>